Well, we are in 2024. Uh, it's feeling crazy in some ways already uh, to me. And uh, how many of y'all feel that way? Okay, so a lot of you, uh, the years just turn quick, huh? Um, well, we're going to be starting off a new series, and this series is going to be on 1 Corinthians to start with. We may end up going into 2 Corinthians. Um, the title of the series is A Church Recalibrated. And um, we're going to be, this morning, getting some introductory remarks about the church at Corinth and what was happening there. And then we'll, we'll not just introductory remarks, there's going to be some, uh, also some unpacking the scriptures we get introduced to the church uh, through the text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to give you just a little bit of background as you're turning there about the church um, and when it was planted and how Paul uh, began his missionary work there. Uh, it, which is um, really out of Acts chapter 18. So you, if you have a marker, I'm not going to go back and read all of Acts 18, but I would encourage you to make sure to, to look back at that uh, chapter and just to verify some of the things that I'm sharing that, uh, that come out of the text of Acts chapter 18 as Paul plants the church. So he was actually, Paul was, on his second missionary journey when he goes from Athens uh, and heads a little bit west uh, across the, that area into what is now Corinth, uh, or what was then the, uh, the city of Corinth. It's an interesting city because um, it was actually a large Greek city, actually almost eight to ten times larger than the city of Athens, um, which is a very interesting point. It probably, the scholars believe that about that time, the population of Corinth was around 200,000. Uh, so that's a, a pretty big city at that point. Um, because of where it was, it was located on a very important trade route, which meant that there was a lot of uh, community and culture that happened within Corinth that really influenced both the city itself and then outward regions around it. Particularly, it would have been um, important in, in, in Corinth to have understood Greek philosophy, uh, the importance of rhetoric. Do, do y'all understand what rhetoric is? It's kind of the study of language and how language works at w along with the thinking process. So some of you may not, like students, I'm especially thinking you may not understand some of those things. But when you think about Greek rhetoric or, uh, in particular, you had three components of that uh, rhetoric. They talked about ethos, pathos, and logos, or the, the thinking. So you had ethos, the ethic or truth. Pathos is how it feels, makes you feel, and some of those things. And then the logos is the word itself. So those things were very important in the Greek culture. Um, it, what it also did is it set up these kind of class orders. Because if you were not from uh, a, a group or class where you were raised with that kind of in understanding and education, then you were considered lesser class. And so there was some disparity in the class as well. Lots of slavery and those kind of things. Um, we also know that Corinth was a city that uh, contained a specific uh, deity worship. And that deity was the uh, Aphrodite, which most of us, if you've studied any kind of uh, Greek mythology, would remember that Aphrodite is the goddess of love. Okay, And so that was a very prominent theme that happened in the city of Corinth. So much so that in 146 B.C., the temple of Aphrodite was destroyed. And then in about 46 or 44 B.C., um, it was rebuilt. 
And about the time that Paul would have been uh, coming around and writing to Corinth on that, that missionary journey was probably around 51 A.D., and so that temple uh, is believed to have still been in existence, and the, the worship of Aphrodite would have been impacting the culture. So much so that there were probably about a thousand temple prostitutes in action uh, in this, th- that area. So you think about that population of about 200,000 with that many uh, temple prostitutes, you can see how that culture was impacted greatly by sexual Im- impurity. And that's interesting because one of the issues that is raised in the book of uh, Corinthians is the matter of purity and marriage and relationships. And so having those, those ideas in our the background or from the background help us understand what Paul's addressing as he's teaching the church at Corinth. Um, so when Paul went there from Athens to Corinth, one of the things that he found was uh, a, a small Jewish community that probably had some influence, and in particular, there were two people, a married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who he began to mentor there because they had not come to faith. So they come to faith, and he begins to mentor them. And then the the large part of the culture of the church was actually Gentile-oriented with a small Jewish uh, influence. And so Paul spent about 18 months in Corinth on his first journey. So these folks were really precious to him with that much time being spent there. And so as we see what happens, um, what, what Paul begins to then deal with is this church that is in, in a lot of ways very young and very uh, influenced by the culture and trying to set themselves apart according to the standards of Christ as he's trying to uh, influence them for the gospel truth and in such a way that their community and culture would be set apart from that of the world. What's interesting, um, at, at least I think this is interesting, it's been uh, the city itself has been compared to a modern-day New York or Las Vegas or Los Angeles uh, full of all sorts of activity, large size, many things that would have been faced in those cultures um, as far as relationships and dynamics and all those kind of things. What's, what's especially in- interesting to me about that is the word Corinthians or, or Corinth actually became a verb to Corinthianize. Okay, now, now hang on a second. Corinthianize. It meant to actually play the wanton life because of all that impurity and the things that were happening in the dynamics of the culture. Corinthianize, that you would live a sinful life full of ungodly activity, just wantonness and all about play and the satisfaction of the flesh. And so when you think about that context that Paul's ministering into, um, doesn't that sound like modern America and in a lot of ways the world that we live in as a whole? That there, there's just so much promiscuity, there's little, uh, if you will, concern about holy and righteous living, that, that there's the, the, the um, I'm trying to think of the right word, the moral fiber is undermined because it's mostly about self, like pleasing oneself and doing the things that just feel good in the life of culture rather than living a moral life where right, upright things are happening. And so that's, that's the context of what Paul is dealing with. And so when we get into the text, if you have your Bibles open, I, w- I want you to look at this. We're gonna, um, this isn't part of the, the text that I'm going to be teaching on this morning, but we're going to look at this because this gives us the context for what, uh, why Paul writes this letter back to the church after he's left. So look at verses 10 and 11 of chapter 1. It says in the text, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So, so obviously, when we read that text, the, the church is in some kind of tension over uh, that they're quarreling and they're not united about things that they're facing. And so verse 11 gives us a little bit more insight to what, uh, that, why they're quarreling and, and how Paul discovers this. So in verse 11, let's read, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So this, this person, Chloe, and her people have said, Hey, the church is not healthy. There's things that are going on in the church that are causing disruption, and we're not unified, and Paul, we need your help. Now turn over to chapter 7, if, if you're able to, and look at verse 1. So this is another interesting place that Paul refers back to why the, the letter is being written. He says in, in chapter 7, verse 1, Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman. So, so we don't get the full context of Chloe's, or, or the, the letter that came from Chloe and her group, but we know at some point it's quarreling, it's divisions, and then from 7-1 it deals with what? Sexual immorality, which would again reflect all the things that were happening in that culture. Now, I, I want to pause right here for just a moment, um, and I want you to think about the number of things that come across your, like, I guess just your scope of life in the course of maybe a week or so of time that deal with disunity, deal with sexual impurity or immorality, things that don't align with what God's Word says. And that can be sources like Facebook, news, Twitter, uh, or social media, any of those kind of things. It could be what happens on, uh, if you have college students, you, you likely know what happens on college campuses. Uh, what's happening on high school campuses now. There's so many things that, that are culturally relevant to us today of what Paul's addressing, right? And so I think it's a good point for us to, to think through that this letter, though written centuries ago, is still important for us. And so what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to write this church in hopes of getting them to like dial in and, and that's why the, the title of the sermon series is A Church Recalibrated. It's like they, they started right, and there's great things that are happening, but Paul wants them to dial in and recalibrate back to the things that drive them towards holiness and honoring the Lord in their, their church life and in their personal lives so that they are blessed people walking with Christ rightly. So let's go back to chapter 1, and let's read verses 1 through 9 for our text this morning. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful 
by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So we're going to look at two things this morning. Um, the, the first is this idea of what the church of God is. And then the second is the, the saints of God. And really we're going to look at third because the third thing is, is the implications of these things for us today. So what's really interesting to me is we begin to look at the church of God uh, that, that Paul emphasizes in the book of Corinthians. We see him elevating the call of the church and the importance and the value of the church. Uh, there's 20 times that he uses the word ecclesia, ecclesia. Um, however you pronounce that, it's tricky Greek, but ecclesia. Um, that, that word, and you hear this, and I want to make this kind of clear, because in this, these nine verses, we see some sense of the church being really like brought to life as, as Paul is writing. So that term, ecclesia, um, it actually has, if you notice, the ek, what does the ek mean? The prefix ek. Y'all can talk back this morning. Not, not like the ugly talking back. What does ek mean? Like we have the, the exit sign. Thank you. Why y'all slow on that? I know it's a new year and all, but that's pretty obvious, isn't it? You're, everybody's rusty on the prefixes? Okay. If school hasn't started back, I get it. Um, what, what's another ek word? Exit, ex exciting, is that what you said? Why, why, yeah, what is exciting, like what's the idea behind exciting? You cite something, you note it, right? Excite means you note it outwardly, right? What's another one? Say it again, Katie. Exodus, there is a great one. What does that mean? Out of the land, like they made their way out. Somebody else said another one. Exclude, you leave them out. So y'all are getting the point. Welcome back to, to uh, class 2024. May, I mean, Maxwell, I know you don't start till probably, what, Monday? Start, start, okay, you need some language stuff going into college, right? Okay, so I'm, I'm helping all of us. So ek, this idea of the ecclesia or ecclesia, it's that called out of, kleo, that idea of calling out. So the church is the called out of the world. We should be distinct from those. The word klesia um, that, that the prefix is attached to actually has this idea of summoning. Okay, But it's summoning to a purpose. It's not just to call something to it, to like a point. Like I, 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 You guys hear me talk about my upbringing all the time. It's like, would you, can you imagine being a kid and your parents call you in and you're like, what, I'm like out playing, having a good time, and then you're called into something, and then you do what? You, they say, well, you just, I just want you to sit here. Why? I was out having fun. It doesn't make sense. So you call in for dinner. There's a purpose, right? They, they summon you to the dinner table, or they summon you in. Matthew, come in. Your room's not clean. I don't know how many times I heard that. You got to clean your room. You left these toys out. You got to do these things, right? So you're being summoned to a purpose, and that's the idea of what the church is called to. It's called out of the world to a purpose. And we're going to see Paul unpack what that purpose is as he talks about the value of the church. And so here, here thinking through this uh, idea that the, the church, that word, is used 20 times in the book, and then here, not just the church, but four other times in these nine verses, Paul uses some form of idea or the word call. So let's go back and look at these carefully. So... 
um, let's go back to verse uh, 2. So the, to the church, that's that ecclesia or ecclesia, um, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ, here's the second use, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. So, so there's this calling of the church, this re, like revisioning of who the people of Israel, that's actually a term for the people of God in the Old Testament, the Septuagint used that term. It's recast now to be the church in the New Testament, the people of God that are called together. Called to be what? Saints. What does that word saint actually mean? It means holy ones. We're called to be set apart, to be holy and righteous before God. Not who we once were, and we're going to look at that in just a moment. Not people of sin, but called to be righteous and holy before the Lord by His work in us. So we're called to be saints. And then look at the second part of this verse, in verse 2. He said, with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord. So there's this calling of God through Jesus Christ that brings us into fellowship with the Lord. And then what do we in response do? We call upon the name of the Lord. So, so why is that so significant here as Paul is writing to the church and helping them to understand something? I think it's this, this simple fact. The call that we have upon our lives as people of faith, as we gather collectively, the called out to be saints together, are, have this specific response to call upon the name of the Lord. That we are to enter into a relationship with Him that satisfies the deepest parts of our souls, that transforms the, the longings of our hearts, the actions by which we participate together as we worship Him rightly. And, and folks, I, I wanna, we're going to understand this a little bit more clearly in a minute, but what I think the church today is often missing is we, we forget that we need one another working well together for our benefit so that we are healthy in, in our faith lives. Too often, I think, and I'm, again, I'm going to expose this a little bit later, express this a little bit later. Too often we look at gifting and think, oh, we've got these gifts and we can get busy in ministry. But the truth is, we're not healthy. And we see that expressed here with the, the church at Corinth. So that's a, that's a little bit of a tip of where we're going. So that's, that's one of those ideas about being called. Here's the other thing. Look at, um, look at verse 9. Um, here we have that that one of the next times of the, the use of calling. He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, it's interesting language. The Greek right there actually has the prefix, prefix on that word called again, that ek, you're called out of. And then it says into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Okay. Now, what's interesting is there's actually a preposition. The preposition ice or ace um, is there. And it actually means into. So it, it, Paul is again emphasizing this distance from the world called out of those things, but also into this fellowship with Christ. Isn't that great news? When we think about who we are as followers of Christ, we are to be different, distinct from the world. And we're also called into something unique in fellowship with Christ as we fellowship with one another. I don't think it's any like small reason that Paul spent all of these verses in his introductory remarks giving the church there this primary clear vision about who the church is to be. And why is that a recalibration? 
Because I think what's happened is the church, as we learn in verses 10 and 11, is like this shift that he makes to say the church is disunified. Well, if, if the church is disunified, why is it disunified? Because it's lost the vision of who they're really to be. Different than the world, separated as saints unto Christ in fellowship with Christ and in fellowship with, with one another. And, and I, I think for us today, we have that same responsibility like to be aware of that. To make sure that we're separated from the world, even though we're walking in it, but to be different. To look different, to act different, to think differently, so that our fellowship with one another enhances both who we are in Christ and our fellowship with Him. We need one another desperately. We don't need just the service of one another. We need the encouragement and the, the ministry and the help of one another. And I think that's one of those big pieces that Paul is setting out early in this letter is that in Christ all of these things are available to us. So um, I, I want to mention this too. As, as we look back at verse 9, I think this is... Just a, a, a simple thing, but I don't want to be, like, overlook this just because it can be a simple truth. I think it's also a very encouraging truth. It says, God is faithful by whom you were called. Folks, we need to remember as we start 2024 that our God is faithful. It makes me saying that this morning. Faithful you are. Your promises are sure. Promises, yes and amen. Okay, when we start this year, and, and if you were here last week when we got to kind of look back over 2023, and we saw how God had been faithful through trials and all sorts of things. Folks, I can guarantee you this. There, is still gonna, there, there will still be trials. There will still be struggles that we will face in 2024. Why? Because God uses those things to shape us. Struggles are often the things that we go through that the Lord uses most predominantly to make us like Him, to change our character to change our perspective, to change our trust and reliance upon Him, for us to recognize His faithfulness. And I think too many times we get this American dream that we can avoid suffering. Parents especially, we, we tend, and, and you've heard this term thrown out probably two decades now, but the idea of helicopter parenting, that we hover over our kids trying to, to prevent them from ever experiencing any kind of struggle. Folks, let me remind you, Sometimes we need to back up so that our children experience struggles so that they see the faithfulness of God and that God can, through those struggles, change them, transform them into the likeness of Christ. I'm not saying that we dis disengage from them. We want to counsel them and walk with them through those things, but not trying to prevent and hem them up so that they don't experience pain and struggles. Those things often are the best teachers for all of us. Are y'all with me? How many of y'all know that yourselves as adults? Yeah. But how many of us as adults go, well, I don't want my kids to deal with that. Can I pick Juliana? <laughs> She's been waiting. I saw her grin. I wasn't going to, this is not planned, but it's just, it's like, so Juliana's trying to make decisions about colleges. She has cried more in the last three months than she has in her entire life. And Katie and I have tried to tell her over and over, sweetie, we have, like, perspectives and opinions on this, but we can't make these decisions for you. It's been tremendously hard, tremendously hard. We sat for probably an hour and a half last night and watched her cry for about then an hour and 20 minutes of the hour and a half, but reached decisions. She, she started expressing things differently that she's processed and learned over the last three months. 
And that's because we're not trying to just put the things in place and control her life. We want her to be better at decision-making. We want her to learn how to trust the Lord in these things. And so I'm saying these things not to, to brag on my daughter, but honestly to be a little bit transparent about I'm trying to walk these things out myself so that you guys understand we're in this together. And I know many of you have been praying for Juliana in this process. Gina, I know you've asked and approached her. I know other people are. I know my dad and mom have been doing those things. I know Katie's family has. I know our, our, our other kids have been praying and talking to her about these things, sister-in-laws that she has. I mean, everybody around has been investing in some way. But it's been good to watch her mature to this point, to be able to, to reconcile these things because God is producing a good character in her. And she's recognizing the value of these things. That's what sanctification is about. That's how we walk rightly together. That's how we trust that God is faithful. Because in this, what she's known all along is God is sovereign. But she's still got to be responsive to him and his faithfulness. And so that's what's interesting about the text. Go back and let's look at this again. God is faithful by whom you were called. God is sovereign. He's calling. He's working. He is, he is drawing you to himself because for all of us, our sin runs rampant. And if it's not for God's grace, and we're going to look at that in the text in a minute, we would not have any hope. But God is faithful. He calls. Now look at the next part. It says, in, into the fellowship of his son, uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Um, we are responsive when he calls to say, now I'm moving into fellowship with his son. There is a sovereignty that he uh, acts in, and there is a response on our part to, to move into that fellowship with the son and into fellowship with the church. And we need to elevate both of those things and balance those things rightly because God is faithful and we have a response to, to act according to his call and his work in obedience all the time because we can resist. And our sinfulness leads us to resist just like the sinfulness of the Corinthians led them to disunity, to disruption, to, to lack of peace, and a loss of clarity in their church life. And that's why when we look at the sovereignty of God, and we can dial in and recalibrate because He is faithful, and we, we adjust our lives to His calling in our lives. So look, let's look a little bit further as we talk about what does it mean to be saints, because I think this is the next piece. As we go back to uh, verse 2, and, and we'll cover this a little bit clearly, I hope. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Okay, that, that verse is like packed with tons of stuff. Bless you. Was that a sneeze? Bless you, okay? I'd get you tissue, but there's not any up here, Kathy. She's okay. Um, so that verse is packed with a ton of stuff. First of all, the word sanctified, that word is a little bit different use than what we normally find in Scripture. Most of the time when we talk about Scripture, our sanctification in Scripture, what are we talking about? A process that we're engaging in being sanctified, that we're becoming more and more like Jesus as we mature in our faith. What's interesting is the tense of this word right here, sanctified, actually has to do with that which is completed. So here's what Paul's getting at, is in one sense, when we become followers of Christ, we are sanctified, we are made whole, we are complete works. 
I don't know about you, but that makes me feel like both really encouraged and then like also really in struggle because there's, I, I know that I'm like not there yet, but to know that I'm positionally counted there also is like, hey, that's cool. That beyond cool, that's encouraging and it helps me understand why I need to keep going. Because if positionally I'm there, according to Christ's work in me, that I'm justified and I'm declared righteous, well, I ought to try to walk that way. So if, I'm, if Christ views me clean and, and pure and, and complete, I want to go after that. Does that, like, how many of y'all, like, have done something, whether it be, like, being coached in a sport, maybe it's playing an instrument, um, I don't, there's, there's tons of other things that you could do, but here's the idea. You've been working at something, and someone comes in and goes, I see the progress. Whereas you're in the midst of that, and you don't see the change, but then all of a sudden somebody says, man, you, you just did so well, or I see that fruit, and it, like, makes you, like, puff up your chest and go, I can go further, I can do more. Y'all, y'all get what I mean? Like, yeah, okay, so, so it's like, you go back, maybe I'm, I'm thinking about musicians, you go back and think about all the times you struggled at a, a chord progression or in, in, in some kind of um, ability to get through a song, and it's like, oh, that's just so rough. And then you, you go back and all of a sudden it's like, hey, all that stuff I worked on, it felt good that time. You, you, so you're, you're getting that, but it's like somebody sees that in you. And that's the whole point. Somebody sees that in you. That's what the idea is. Christ sees us sanctified. And because he sees that, we know that, we go further. It's like we don't stop, we don't get discontent, we, we don't quit in the, in the way that we're like, oh, I'm just discouraged, I can't do No, because of who we are in Christ and because of his work in us, we stay the course. And I think it comes back to like Ephesians 2, 10 and 11 immediately to my mind. That he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. That, that he has prepared these good works for you, that you should walk in them right? And, and so those things are before us as followers of Christ because in the Lord's sovereignty, He has sanctified us as followers of Christ positionally. So we have that positional sanctification as well as the experiential sanctification that we work out our faith with fear and trembling because of who we are in Christ. So I think that's a huge piece of this. Um, then let's, let's look back at our text again. Look at verse 3. Paul always includes at least the idea of grace in his uh, greetings to the churches. But here he does this, I think, a little bit uniquely. He says, because he's coming out of this idea of sanctification and this calling. Um, and, and actually, I need to cover, come back and cover something too. But we'll, we'll go to grace now. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this concept of grace, the roots of any Christian, the roots of any church have to be grace. What is grace? Grace is the sum total of God's actions towards sinful man. I, I know we can give that acrostic, you know, where you break it out, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's fine. But I, I want to emphasize something a little bit differently this morning in this idea of grace. It is the sum total of God's loving actions. It's not just what's rooted in Christ. It's what continues that happens all the way through our sanctification. That, that through Christ, everything that God does in us is a loving action. Because I think so many times we think, well, that's a tough thing. Like what I described about the suffering and struggles earlier. 
Those tough things don't feel loving, but they are. It's God's grace constantly drawing us to him. The sum total of all those things that he's working all the time. What that does is it transforms us as a church as a, as, and as individuals. So, so let me go back to verse 2 for just a moment because I think this is important and it'll be good to emphasize here. Those who are sanctified in Christ, he says, he calls this as saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of Jesus Lord as Lord. Now let me pause there for just a moment and clarify something because I said this is packed full. When Paul's writing here, who's he writing predominantly to? The church at Corinth. We cannot deny that because we got the context for why the letter's written from Chloe that it's about sexual impurity and disunity in the church. But what Paul is also teaching the church there is though this local church at Corinth is essential and it's important and they need the correcting, what is he also saying about the universal church here? He's saying because of who you are in Christ, the church is broader than just that at Corinth. And so, yes, he's calling the church at Corinth to recalibrate, but I also think that this message can be much broader than that because the truth is we're related to every other believer, and we're related to every other local church. So we cannot deny this. The importance of the local church is essential, but it also relates to the church universal. Now, why, why do I need to camp there for a minute? And I'm going to be really blunt for just a moment. There's a lot of people today in our age that do not value the local church. It's, it's a shame because the local church is, it accomplishes, I think, two primary things. The first is this, it's the place that our gifting is acted out most efficiently and effectively. Apart from the local church, we cannot have like leadership in place and membership that knows how to operate together. We live in an age where the tendency is, especially when you get around mega churches in bigger cities, people just do the buffet-style church attendance. Does that make sense? They go, hey, what buffet do we want this week? We go and we pick and choose those couple things. And we go, oh, that's, that's, I got my fill. But they don't serve, they don't relate well to the, the local body, and they end up anemic because there's no accountability. There's no real chance for the body to serve and, and build in the gifting. Folks, Paul, right here, sets apart the local church for, as a primary ministry uh, extension of Christ as a body. And if we don't elevate the local church, we're missing the mark. So for us, and I'll just share this, we had a, a plethora of people recently starting to move towards membership, and it's a great thing for our church. We have a covenant of membership. Uh, you don't sign it in blood, okay? Don't, relax, don't worry. I joke about that when people sign it, um, but we just have you sign it with a pen. Is it, is it binding? Yes, it is binding. Because what you're saying when you sign that covenant is we agree to do local ministry together as a church to serve the body in this way. And we're in a point right now in our recalibration, revitalization, that membership is essential because we need members serving in ministry. With membership comes privileges. It's the privilege of really walking together in a different way, a level of accountability. You, say, you may say, well, I don't want accountability. I want more freedom. It's not healthy. That is not healthy. Because through the local church, our lives are held in best accountability and we walk together effectively with Christ and one another. Apart from that, we are left, like, and, and I, I use this term all the time, on the fringe. And the fringe is not a good place to be. 
The, the fringe leaves you exposed. You don't have the right relationships. You can't use your gifting well. And, and so I want to encourage you as we go through the book of, of Corinthians, valuing and understanding how Paul values the church and then valuing ourselves is essential. So here's, here's what uh, we also see that, that this fruit of grace provides in us. Let's go back to the text now and look at this a little further. He says in verse uh, f- 5 now, um, well, let's go back to 4. He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as, as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So why do we need grace? Why do we need grace? Many of you have already answered that real quickly, but I want to remind you, our hearts are sinful. Our hearts are sinful and desperately wicked is what Jeremiah 17, 9 says. Romans tells us that our, basically our mouths are as open sepulchers, that we can't speak the truth, that we, we don't pursue God, that our hearts are unrighteous. Sin is dangerous. Sin corrupts us, and we cannot pursue Christ on our own. It is only by God's grace that our sin is overcome. And so Paul is elevating that, even though it's a subtle, nuanced idea or or, um, concept here. It nonetheless, it reminds us of our desperate need for Christ to transform us through salvation. And so that faithfulness that, that we see about God, His calling us through the grace and the work of Christ is essential for us to see. And if, if you don't understand that, we, I would just offer you this this morning. Find someone here. It could be me. It could be anybody else. Michael's another elder. There's other leaders, grow group leaders, all sorts of people here that would love to talk to you about the complexity of sin, how that robs your uh, eternal life from you and creates a spiritual death, but how God has overcome that through the gift of Jesus Christ and the grace that is being offered to you. It's a simple thing. You just trust Jesus' work instead of your own. But if you want more conversation about that, we want to counsel you about those things so you can have a confident relationship with Christ. When you know that grace, what happens, look at this, okay? Verse verse 5. In every way, you are enriched in Him. See, the grace of Christ, it doesn't provide just this, like, moment of salvation that you're saved from hell and the consequences of sin. It enriches you. So you turn away from the old person that you were and you begin to walk in a new way, enriched because of who Christ is in you and the the transformation that begins to take place. And he says this further. He says, you're enriched in what? All speech and knowledge. Man, can you imagine? Like Paul talks about how we should season our speech like salt with grace. The, The Proverbs talk about that again and again, that we should change our speech to one another. Imagine if how we talked and spoke to one another was always built upon the grace of God. Transform. How different would community be in the church and outside of the church? And then he says this, the grace also brings what? Knowledge. We ought to be increasing in our knowledge of the Lord and all of the things that, that uh, transpire with him. I, uh, yesterday, we got to go down to my, my folks' house in Chattanooga. Um, this happens every year. It's my mom's side of the family. She gets some of her. She's the oldest of six kids, so siblings, all her siblings come in, and aunts and uncles and all that kind of stuff around us. 
Um, one of my cousins, who's way younger than me, because with six kids, my, I have an uncle that's only four years older than me. So it's his youngest daughter. Um, she, she's married now, has a kid. She married a guy from Honduras. I think that's where, is it El Salvador? Anyhow, he's, he's Spanish, okay, Hispanic, Spanish-speaking. Um, she met him on a missionary trip, and she speaks fluent Spanish. He does not speak very good English. But yesterday, and they've been married probably a year and a half, something like that. Um, so he got into conversations with me yesterday in broken English, but was, you know, I was like so blessed because he's reading guys like R.C. Sproul and uh, Paul Washer and others and uh, uh, listening to John Piper. And he started asking me questions about faith matters. I was so encouraged because I saw the fruit of what God's doing in his life bringing him to America, having him learn the language, but more importantly, challenging him through great theologians of the modern era who really sound biblically, and his thinking is transforming. And all he wanted to talk about is the beauty of worshiping God, the, 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 ma- the amazing God that we serve, the, the power of God's grace. I was, I was honestly blown away in that 15, 20-minute conversation with this young man who's 27. And I, I wanted to, I honestly was like, I want to connect him in some way with Luis Lopez. I don't know if you guys remember him. He was the director of our, our Spanish work and missions in our association a few years ago. But, but it was just so encouraging. And my point being, when God's grace impacts us and we begin to grow in a knowledge of him, we can't help but talk about that grace and encourage one another. Language barriers don't matter. To, 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 to like work through the nuances and, and to have translation and then work at those things. It was encouraging to me as a guy that's 54 years old working with a young guy at 27, going, man, he's, he's getting this. How much more can we increase in our speech about the things of God and our knowledge about the things of God? None of us have arrived. None of us have arrived. And we ought to continue to grow and encourage one another in those things. So here's what ultimately happens, is Paul says, these are all those things that you have, church. Th- these, are, these are what you are blessed with. But here's what's unfortunately happening in the church. All of these things are being like undermined because of their disunity and their pursuit or their allowance of sin in the church life. And so here's what's also very interesting to me. Um, If we can look at verse 7, he says, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This church at Corinth, to me this is maybe the most like pressing thing that we could consider today. The church of Corinth, Paul says, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. Man, like if if I were to say, because I think this is probably true of every church, the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us gifts. It's not mine to own, okay? He empowers me with the gifts. Now, I think there's bents and things that, that I, are about my personality and your personality the Holy Spirit uses in that gifting. But if we were to look at the church, the church has the gifts that it needs. We're not lacking in any spiritual gifts, just like the church at Corinth. But here's the thing. The church at Corinth, though not lacking any spiritual gift, was unhealthy. You get that? And we need to be careful not to elevate the gifts and, and the presence of those gifts and excuse unhealthiness just because we have the gifts. 
there's a lot of unhealthy things that can occur in a church life, though the gifts are present. And that's why the recalibration of the church, focusing in on the grace of God, focusing in on how we do these things well, is essential. Because if we're an unhealthy church, who cares about the gifts? Because they'll be used in a wrong or unhealthy way that will actually undermine what God wants to do. And so what that does, it leads us to these three implications. The first, we can't walk in sin. We have got to be people that lean into the grace of God continually, that we're speaking the grace of God to one another, encouraging each other to, to be who we are in that positionally sanctified place to work that out. That, that we're saying, hey, we, we see these weaknesses. We see these areas that, that are not just weaknesses, but where there's tendencies to sin, and we're holding each other accountable. And we're going to look at this later, but this is one of the primary books that Paul deals with church discipline in. And church discipline is not a very um, like well-received concept in the, the modern era. That's why people want to do the buffet church stuff. They don't want the accountability in the relationship because if they can do that, then no one holds them accountable. There's never discipline, and they can continue to foster the sin in their lives. Folks, that's not help. That's not church help. We've got to be people of the word so that when sin is in the camp, we say sin is in the camp. We're dealing with it out of God's grace because we want to see the sanctified position become the sanctified process and those things reflect well together so that we're a church that's healthy, that God can bless and honor. Now, to give you a little tip, what's cool is Paul confronts the church here in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. They fix it and he gets it right. they get it right and he gets to commend them for that. So it's walking the process out that's the important part, not just identifying that we've got issues. And I'm not saying we do. Don't hear me say that. But we need to make sure that we understand these things biblically so that if we do, or when the time comes that we do, we rightly handle it according to God's Word. That's part of the recalibrating in on God's grace. The second is this, um, that we would cooperate enthusiastically in our sanctification. Folks, it's easy to look at a new year and say, hey, how many like New Year's resolutions do you make and all that stuff? I'm not ever, I've not ever been into that. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I can't fall through or whatever. But he- here's my thing. I just want to pursue God. Like If I'm doing that, it doesn't have to be a resolution. I just want to make more of this year than I did last year. Like That to me is about what it means to be enthusiastically pursuing God. I would just recommend this. Don't make it a resolution. Just make it a commitment. Be biblical. Pursue God enthusiastically. That's what Paul's saying to the church. How we do that together is by encouraging one another. What does that mean? Will you value and and esteem some activities and events and relationships in the church so that we're walking that out well? Third, the third implication. We do need to serve one another well. If we've been given these gifts, if we're a church that's not lacking gifts, like the church at Corinth, we need to be employing those gifts serving one another well. Michael often stands up here and says, if you need like information about how to get involved, where, where you can serve, come talk to us. Come talk to other ministry leaders. We're about to um, engage with ministry leaders in a couple weeks, uh, spend an, each, an hour with each ministry leader to go over vision casting for their areas this year. It, so by the end of January, I'm kind of guessing at this, but I think this will happen, you will hear these ministry leaders coming out of those meetings with more concrete and uh, clear ideas and also expressing the clear needs that we have as a church. 
we want you to be praying for those, those ministry areas. I'm going to give them to you. Women's ministry with Gina. Uh, youth ministry, which we don't have necessarily a key leader, but we'll be addressing those things. Gina's a primary teacher right now on Sunday mornings, um, so we'll be talking about some of those things. Uh, we're, we have a need for missions. Mallory is about to, to bear a new child, um, and so she's stepped down as the missions team leader here this week, and we need to think through missions, but we're not stopping missions, okay, just because Mallory's not there. Uh, we, we've got to, to re, like recalibrate uh, some of that, and work on missions. Um, Michael, help me out. What are some other uh, children's? Angie with children's ministry. So Angie's already been implementing things. Again, way to go. It was so refreshing today to find people moving in here and having conversations rather than the foyer being clogged up. Did y'all find it was easier to register your kids? Y'all, y'all like, <laughs> am I just like, <laughs> some of y'all, thanks, Kevin. <laughs> if he didn't say that, Angie's going to make you pay later <laughs> today, right? Um, no, but those things are, those are flow things that we need to get right. So Angie will be part of that conversation. Um, Michael, who else am I? Finance team, uh, we'll be meeting with the greeting team, okay? And so Mandy with the greeting team. So all of those are the, the ministry team areas that we're looking at right now. So be praying for those leaders and those people in those areas of, of ministry so that uh, we, An- Angela White, too, is um, so the leader of the finance team. I didn't want to leave you out. So... Um, pray for those folks. Pray for what God's doing over this month as we cast vision because we do need you serving in these ministry areas, utilizing the gifts that God has given. So that's a huge implication. Some of you may hear this and go, you know, I've been attending for a little while and you know, we're still praying about membership. Have that conversation with someone. I would encourage you to talk to Michael, myself, and Kevin King is a member that's moving into helping membership as a member of the church, be uh, represented well. So talk to one of the three of us about what that looks like. We'll get you the manuals that we'll, we typically go through. Uh, it's not healthy to be attending a church and for months and months and months and months and then not joining. God is, I believe, calling some of us, uh, some of you, to, to join our body and to employ your gifts in a unique way. Don't delay that. It will be unhealthy for you and ultimately unhealthy for our body in the long run. Um, the last implication is this. How are you walking in holiness? And I want to go back to that comment that I made earlier. If we're using our gifts, but we're not walking in health, in holiness, we'll be unhealthy and we'll remain unhealthy. That is both a personal issue that we all need to reflect on is how is sin being rooted out? How is God's grace being elevated in my life? So that not that we increase in sin so that grace increases according to Romans 6, but instead that we would root out sin and put it to death so that God's grace is elevated because He transforms us through His grace. And if we will be a church that walks in spiritual health, a lot of these other things will just fall into place. And that's really the highest priority that we have. The the greatest implication is that we would be a church of godliness, that we would respond to who we are as the saints of God, who our status is changed into because we know Christ. So I I, want to just end this morning by asking this question. As you're starting this year, do you know of unrepentant sin in your life? Do, Do you know of places that you go, man, 
Lord, this is a place, an, a, an issue in my life that I need to take time to repent of, to reflect on, to maybe seek biblical counseling about, to get accountability for, so that I would walk in holiness. Because if we don't do that at the start of the year, all the other things could get aligned, but help won't be good. And that's, that's ultimately what we see in the church at Corinth. So let us be people that walk rightly as the saints, positionally sanctified and experientially being sanctified as well. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for Paul, for churches that struggled. Uh, Lord, it, it reminds us that we are not complete, even though you see us in that completed form like Christ because of Christ in us. But you also recognize that we need to be sanctified in progress. And Lord, I pray that today, as we start this year, we would take this real clear challenge that the church at Corinth faced, and we would use that as a mirror to hold it up to ourselves so that, that you point out and, and help us to see where we are unhealthy, where we need to maybe attach to the body, where we may need to uh, confess sin, where we need to elevate grace, where we need to build different relationships. Lord, there's so many hundreds of things that we could do. But Lord, the, the, the real root of it is this. We've got to be in right fellowship with you. And so I thank you for, for where you started this letter in this sense in Paul's mind under the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we are called to call upon you. So Lord, let us not be satisfied with just the positional relationship, but let us be like driven to and, and um, enthusiastic about responding to your calling by approaching you, by, by being um, only satisfied with a deepening knowledge and understanding of your person, your goodness to us in Christ. So, Father, I'm, I'm going to do this just for a moment. We're going to just take about 30 seconds, and I'm going to be quiet, and I want people here in the congregation to be able to respond to you speaking to them. Lord, and, and how we want to do this is just this. We want to take a minute just to reflect over the thoughts of the message and the text. And Lord, we want you to do this. Elevate the one thing in our hearts and our minds of how we ought to respond rightly. And Lord, as we hear that and sense that from you and your leadership of the Spirit, we just want to commit to be obedient to respond rightly. So I'm going to be quiet. I want to ask you just to respond to the Holy Spirit. Father, it always amazes me when I think about hundreds or thousands of people lifting their hearts and minds and voices, and whether that be internally or externally, to you, and you being able to comprehend all of the prayers that are uh, happening in, in one moment. And Lord, your spirit that moves in the same way in every moment in each one of our lives. Lord, this morning, what we want 
is I pray in a pastoral sense over us, is we want to be a healthy church. So Lord, I pray that you would recalibrate us. Help us to, to identify where there's static and noise, this unhealthy, that, where there's unrighteousness, where there's sin. And Lord, help us also to dial in the, the places of health that are really good and make sure that we don't miss those and, and uh, like overshoot them because we're trying to correct something else. Lord, so what we need is we, we need your wisdom, we need your spirit to empower us, to give us discernment. Lord, we need your word to be laid out bare before us so that we would respond well to that. Lord, even as I pray that, I reflect back on the message out of Malachi that it's the burden of the word of the Lord. Lord, it is the weightiest thing that by which we can trust you to reveal these things to us. Lord, let us not be satisfied just to go through the motions of, of our faith. Lord, instead, let us deepen our walk with you so that we are body unified, that Christ is exalted. We are seeing you faithful in all things because you are a great, glorious, mighty God who is worthy of our worship, of enthusiastic worship that exalts Jesus in all things. So, Father, as we stand together in this reprise of uh, worship and through music, I pray that you would be exalted and blessed by our continued worship today. In Jesus' name we pray. 